If you weren't alive, alert, awake, and enthusiastic before that song, hopefully you are now. So I, I want to start out with gratitude. Yeah. I have my tears here. I have my tissues. I'm prepared. I, I'm grateful for everybody here. I'm grateful for you guys showing up. I'm grateful for the support I've had to get to this point. It's been an amazing journey, which I'm going to share with you. But even before that, I want to share gratitude for the men and women who are veterans. Who, if it weren't for them, we wouldn't have the freedom that we have today. And I just want to say thank you for all that you did, for all that you sacrificed, because I know I couldn't do it. And I'm so grateful. Can we give them a round of applause, please? So, I was raised Catholic about a hundred years ago. <laughs> and what I got from that was, what I learned from it, what I gleaned from it was my mother's spirituality. It was religion to me, but it was spirituality to her. And she loved it, and she was passionate about it. And I watched her at times in our lives that it was scary. But she had such undying faith. She would always say, God knows what's best. And she relied on that. She didn't hesitate. That was hers. Well, by high school, I had had it with the Catholic Church. I believed that when I went to church, I should leave feeling better than when I got there. And I never did. So I started seeking. And at 18, I started transcendental meditation. And that helped for a little while, but it was a big commitment, 20 minutes, twice a day, you know? I mean, that's a lot of time. <laughs> I didn't want to sit quiet for 20 minutes twice a day. It lasted maybe six months, but today I still know that mantra if I ever rely on that for my meditation practice. Then college came, and I just continued to seek. I continued to go to different churches and find my way and for some reason, church just wasn't it for me. I, I couldn't find it. And, you know, I was also going to psychotherapy to help me. You know, here I am, 20 years old, and I'm already trying to figure out why I'm not happy, right? And, and there were other things that I was doing in addition to psychotherapy and seeking out churches and seeking out different spiritual communities. Well, at 33 years old, my life came to kind of a crash because what had happened was I was with a man that, once again, I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with, and he broke up with me. And my uh, solution to that was to step behind his car while he was going in reverse. So, needless to say, I didn't get killed, but it was a red flag. A lot of my friends said, that's not okay, that's not normal, there's something wrong here. And I went for a girls' weekend at my friend Janine's house, and her friend Nanette said, have you ever heard of CODA, Codependence Anonymous? And I was like, no. She's like, I think you might need it. <laughs> okay. So uh, that was my first step into a 12-step program. But before I even walked into the door, I met a man named Steve, and he was telling me about something called the Essential Experience. And it was a four-day intensive workshop, kind of like Est and Lifespring. And before I even walked in the door, I knew I was signing up for this other thing, this EE thing. And, you know, 
12-step programs are amazing. That was my new tribe, my new family, but so was the community from EE. I did this four-day intensive, and it was an amazing community of people. I met my dear friend, Barbara Hope Viviani, and became super close with her. She kind of remothered me. She taught me that I was lovable. She made me feel like nobody in my life ever felt made me feel before. It was, it was a divine connection. And I want to share a lot of this because what fully alive means to me is to be awake, alive, alert in life. And to become aware of all of these little points in life that are helping me get to where I am today. So I became really good friends with Hope and became part of this woman's group that she was in, which meant once a month, I had to cook dinner for all these women, which like was freaking me out. But after seven years, I got very comfortable with it. I really knew how to cook dinner for five or six women, which was awesome. It was awesome. And I continued going to my 12-step programs, which really helped me to, if you know anything about the 12 steps, but it really helps you to dig in and see who you are and see where you come from. I remember one of my first sponsors saying to me when I shared uh, how my mother went into postpartum after I was born and she didn't want to hold me for six months. So I cried and I didn't know for many years that, you know, they called me the crybaby, but I didn't know the reason was that my mother didn't want to pick me up, that my mother didn't want to feed me. She would send my aunt in to feed me. She would send my sisters in to get me, but she didn't want to hold me. She didn't want to have anything to do with me. And so all of a sudden things started making sense, you know, why I didn't trust people and why I would get into these bizarre relationships that didn't last. And it was okay when I broke up with the guy, but when he broke up with me, I wanted to, you know, I didn't slit my wrist, but I wanted to jump behind his car. So things started to make some sense to me, you know, and I started to do some healing. So one of the play workshops that I did through the EE group, I met a woman named Sue Lairs. And Sue lived up in the South Windsor area, and she shared with me about a church called Hope Church. And she said, Teresa, do you want to experience EE every weekend? You have to go to Hope Church. Of course I do. You know, I was a junkie for this you know, adrenaline rush when I go to church. And I walked in, and it was amazing. The singing was amazing. This place was two hours from my house, but it didn't matter. I was driving up there every Sunday. Carl Reverend Carlos Anderson was the minister up there. Mm -hmm. And this became my spiritual home to the point where I considered packing up and moving up there. But when I thought about it, and I had already left corporate America and started my own business, and I had this great, successful business down here, I said, you know what, just driving up there once every couple of weeks was good enough. Now it went down to every couple of weeks. Eventually it was once a month that I went there. But I still considered Carlos my minister. And the other thing that I was very drawn to was network marketing companies. And I was very drawn to them because many of them have a spiritual component to them. And I can remember more than once hearing people in the network marketing companies say, you know, Jesus was the first network marketer. And I never thought about it, but he really got people to follow him, right? And to do what he did. And that's what network marketing is. It's about finding a leader that you can copy and do what they do and dip, duplicate what they do. So it was in my mind a little bit about this Jesus thing, but, you know, I don't know, it just didn't hit me yet. So, I was pretty successful in a company called NECAN, it was the one that I was most successful in, and 
actually, it gave me my biggest teacher as far as where I am today, because that's where I met Michael Bronstein. Michael Bronstein was a uh, diamond distributor for Nikan. He had, I don't know, about 20,000 people in his downline. He was an amazing man. And the first day I met him, I knew there was some kind of connection there, but it wasn't until six months later that we started dating. And a year and a half after that, it was on June 1st of 2003, we actually moved in together. But shortly after we moved in together, he got sick. He started showing, he started having these sores on his legs. And so we started looking to see what was wrong with him. And it was like one doctor after another doctor. And then in October, uh, he took a medication that he was allergic to. And he was laying in bed and I'm laying down next to him. And he was so sick. And all of a sudden, I felt I was alone. He was gone. And I freaked out. I was like, oh my God, Michael, Michael. And so, I, so I start like calling out to him. And in about, I don't know, it was probably like two minutes or maybe it was five. I don't know how long. It felt like an eternity. He comes back and he says, wow, that was amazing. He said, I saw this amazing light. He said, and all I could smell was roses. He said, and I was in no pain. I had no pain anywhere in my body. And I'm like, really? And now all of a sudden I'm like, shoot, I just, I don't know, I don't know, did I do something? And then he said, and then I heard you, uh -oh. and I came back. Uh -oh. And I was like, oh boy. But then I said, you know what, I'm not that powerful, right? I'm not that powerful. It wasn't his time to go, right? And I had another year of pain and suffering to go through, and so did he. So that's what we did. We went through the, next, the following year as he got sicker and sicker and sicker. But a couple of things that he taught me was go where you're celebrated, Teresa, not where you're tolerated. Go where you're celebrated. And it was a big aha moment for me. It was also the other thing he told me was because in network marketing, you know, it's about people that want to do what you've done to get where you are. But I always pick the people that wanted to be where I was but didn't want to do what I did. So you end up dragging them along. You end up doing a lot more work than you have to do. So it became a, a really astounding to me for me to realize, you know, if people aren't willing to do what you did, then you gotta let them go. And it's the same in 12-step in programs, right? It's, it's, a, it's a program of attraction. It's about allowing people to see what you've done and be willing to listen to what you have to say and do what, you, what you're telling them because you know from experience. So we were together for uh, one and a half years and I, moved, I sold everything in uh, June and moved June 1st of 2003. Now, Michael couldn't marry me because he was never divorced. His wife didn't want to divorce him because his mother was a multimillionaire and she, he, she wanted millions of dollars. Plus, when she was with him, he was a millionaire. So she wanted millions of dollars and he didn't have that to give her. So he never divorced her. So on July 17th of 2003, he said, look, I can't marry you, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to sign over my life insurance policy to you. So that if anything ever happens to me, you at least are financially covered. And actually, it wasn't the whole thing. He gave me $600,000 and he had two sons. They each got $200,000. I said, whatever, Michael. You're not going to die. Don't worry about it. So anyway, 
Um, and also in that process, in that time that we were together, these are just little pieces that I'm sharing with you because what I have found in my life is when I'm alive and awake and aware, I get to see the miracles that are happening all the time. So one day we went into this mall in Nyack, I think it was, or maybe it was Palisades Mall, I can't remember, but there was an art store. And I had to go to the ladies' room, so he went in and I was gonna meet him in there. And I walk in and I see this Thomas Arvid painting, and it's a painting of a wine bottle and a glass of red wine, and the wine bottle has on it the label of Silver Oaks Winery. And I was like, oh my God, that painting is beautiful. And it was big, it was a big painting. And I said, Michael, I gotta show you this picture. It's gorgeous. He says, I got one too, I gotta show you. Well, it turns out we both fell in love with the same picture. <laughs> I'm buying it. I'm like, Michael, we don't have $1,500. You can't buy it. I'm buying it, I don't care, I'm buying it. Pulls out the credit card, he buys it. We take it home, we put it on in our dining room. And it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous painting. I loved it. So time goes on and Michael gets sicker and sicker, and it's um, now Memorial Day weekend of 2004, and I have to rush him to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. And I leave him there that night, not knowing I'm gonna come back, because they have to do a blood transfusion for him. And I'll just never forget, it was 11 o'clock at night walking, there's certain moments that I remember so vividly, walking down the hallway, and there's no one in the hospital 11 o'clock at night, you know, and just, remembering the fear in me and having to trust that it was gonna be okay and that I was gonna be okay. And I had to go outside and take a cab because I don't drive into New York. So I took a cab from Columbia Presbyterian to this place in New Jersey and then I would drive home from New Jersey. I think it was New Jersey, I don't know. It doesn't matter. That's the way I, I went to visit him all the time. I would drive to this little strip mall, get a cab, they would take me into, and, and his mother paid for me to take the cab because she couldn't go see him. She was in her 90s. And she was thrilled to have me go and visit him. Both his parents were in their 90s. So he finally got diagnosed with something called cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. And they gave him his first round of chemo. And within a couple of weeks, they said, we can let you go. You can go to a rehab. So they sent him to a rehab near me, which was great. But within two days, I knew he was in the wrong place. He was not being treated well. I'll just leave it at that. And I got up the next morning and I said a prayer before I went for my walk. I said, God help me. I was begging. I was begging back then. I didn't know that God was already in me. I was, God was outside of me and I begged. I said, please help me find a way to get him out of there. I don't know how to do this with all the insurance. I just know he needs to leave. And by the way, God, make this sign be really clear. So I'm walking down the street and a mouse walks in front of me. I'm like, I wanna know what a mouse means. What does a mouse mean? <laughs> what does that symbol mean, right? <laughs> so, okay, I keep walking. And then I come to this house that has a pond in the backyard. And I see this really big thing jump into the pond. And I'm like, what the heck was that? And I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm waiting for this thing to come out and it's not coming out. Now I'm thinking it's drowning. Okay, now what, what am I gonna do? I just watched something jump in the pond. It was drowning in there. I'm freaking out. And this lady comes jogging up, and she's like, what are you looking at, girly? I said, something just jumped into this pond and it's not coming out. Oh, come on, she grabs me by my hand. Now we're trespassing on people's property to go see what this was. And we're looking and we literally bang our heads together, right? Uh -huh. And uh, next thing you know, it jumps out and it was a fish. 
It was a fish. It was a big fish in a pond that I didn't, all I saw it was out of the side of my eye. And so we're laughing. And she said, what's your name? I said, Teresa. I said, what's your name? And she said, Jane. I said, oh, what do you do, Jane? And she says, I'm a coach. I said, oh, like a personal trainer coach, because she was jogging down the street. That's what I assumed. She says, no, I'm a spiritual coach. And I'm like, uh. <laughs> wow. I said, I just prayed for you. And she said, why? What's going on? So I start telling her about Michael. Right? No accidents here, right? So I tell her about Michael. You know, answer prayer right there. Thank you, Myrtle, whoever. And she says, okay, now by this time we've walked back to the house and we're standing at the end of the driveway. Now, I was raised Catholic, and I know I did a lot of searching and everything. But what she next said to me freaked me out. She said, you demand, you demand Michael's guides and angels to do what is in his highest good right now. And I'm like, demand? Yes, you demand it. With this voice, with a strong voice, you demand. And she said, and realize that might mean that it might be his time to go home. But it's in his, you can know that it's in his highest good. I'm like, Jane, are you kidding me? She said, what brought us together? I'm like, I don't know. What brought us together? She said, the fish. The fish brought us together. That is a sign of Jesus Christ. She said, we are supposed to be here together and we're supposed to be on this journey. I'm getting goosebumps again. Yeah. Every time I tell this story. So I'm like, okay. So my demanding looked much like me in a ball on the floor, crying, sobbing. <laughs> God, just make this happen. I don't know about this woman, but I need Michael to be better. <laughs> so later that day, I go to the hospital, or the rehab place, and Michael's eyes are rolling in his head, and it was, like, awful. And I go out to the nurse. I'm like, you guys got to call 911. He's, well, we tried calling the doctor. I said, call 911. He needs to be in the hospital. So they did that, and the ambulance says to me, do not follow us. Just get to this hospital. It was Good Samaritan Hospital. So I call Jane on the way over, and I tell her what happened. She says, Teresa, just see Michael in God's hands. That's exactly where he is. Put your hands in front of you and imagine Michael's in God's hands. So I said, okay. So from there, it wasn't, Michael was there for two weeks. Meanwhile, I'm working every day with Jane. She's doing, we're doing rituals together. I'm like, this lady is whacked. I, I had no idea, but she was my door opening to bigger, brighter ways of being spiritually. And the day that, we, one night we got together, she said, okay, we're going to go see Michael tomorrow together, and we're going to bring him something, something really unusual. Okay, what do you think? And just as she said that, my cat Jasmine jumps up on the couch. We're going to bring Jasmine into the hospital, I'm like, Oh my God, this lady, I keep... <laughs> so sure enough, the next day she comes over, she puts Jasmine in her pocketbook. <laughs> and we go sneaking into the hospital. We get by the guards and everything. I'm like, oh. So, and Michael had his own room because he had these open sores and they didn't know. So we put Jasmine on the bed with him and he is so happy. And Jasmine is purring. It was amazing. And... Then Michael started to see, actually he took off his oxygen mask, he had oxygen on. He took off his oxygen mask and he started seeing things. He started seeing, he saw Jesus' face and, and Jane starts singing, oh actually, he told her to go sit at the, stand at the foot of his bed 
And I have all this written down somewhere, and I didn't look it up, but this is all just coming to me right now. So then she said, no, Teresa, you go there. And I went there, and she says, no, because I was standing there with my hips, my hands on my hips. She's like, no, you got to be open. So she went and stood there, and she started singing that song that's an Irish, it's an Irish blessing song about the wind behind you. I don't know what it was, but she started singing it. And he starts seeing things in the room. And I was like, wow, he, it appeared that he was getting better, that he was having some kind of healing. Well, that night, 3.30 in the morning, we get a phone call that Michael died. And it was the healing that he needed to make the transition, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I called Jane at 3.30 in the morning, hysterical. And anyway, um, we went on and, you know, we had, uh, Michael's mom had him buried and he was Jewish, so it had to be done really quickly. So there was lots of stuff going on there. But then it came time to clean out the house because I had to get out of the house. We were renting the house. I couldn't afford it. It was a 3,000 square foot home. I needed to get out of there. So Jane would come over every day and help me clean up. And there were certain things I was leaving for the kids. He had two boys. But I took the painting out. That was the first thing that went. I'm like, that Ar Thomas Arvid painting is coming with me. And one day she came in and she says, we got to go into Michael's bathroom. I'm like, no. I said, let the boys clean out his bathroom. I don't want to go in there. She says, no, we have to go in the bathroom. And I'm like, what? What are you talking? We have to go into the bathroom. There's something in there. And I'm like, I have no idea what this woman's talking about. Okay. So we go into the bathroom, and we're cleaning out under the sink. And she pulls out one of his uh, toiletry kits that he used to travel. And I opened it up, and I see something flash and fall. I'm like, wait a minute, what is that? And I go to pick it up, and he had a diamond pin that he lost. He thought he lost from being a diamond distributor at Nikan. And now I have his diamond pin. So she said, they told me. They told me there was something. I'm like, who told you? Who told you? <laughs> his guides told me we had to find something. There was something there for you. And I'm like wow, this lady is just okay, you know, but there, I had a believer because how else would she know this? She would have no way of knowing. So I guess my point is to be open to those things that really look different than what we're used to. And so Jane continued to help me throughout the next six months. One of the things that she helped me do was go to the attorneys because what had happened was when Michael signed me over on his life insurance, he signed the paper and he sent it through the fax, so he had all the documentation, but he didn't date it. And when you don't date a contract, it's not a valid contract, which meant his ex-wife was gonna get the million dollars and I was gonna get nothing. So we found an attorney and uh, the other reason why was the insurance company sent it to two addresses before where he lived, so it never got back to us for the, for the date. Anyway, turns out he signed that contract. This is kind of an interesting fact. He signed that contract on July 17, 2003, and he died July 17, 2004, exactly one year later. And it turns out we had to go to the, these attorneys. And Jane, I was numb. I didn't know. I was just like following her around. You know, I didn't know what to do. So we would walk into this attorney's office. So their, their name was Keen and somebody, and they were in Nyack, I believe. And we would get in, you know how they have the big office room, you know, with the big table. And so it's just the three of us. And we would sit down and she says, okay, we need to pray now. And the guy is like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, whatever. <laughs> 
And she starts calling in guides and angels and God. And every time, we went there, I think, four times. And every time, she would pray out loud. And, okay, by, by, the, by the end, I'm used to it. He's used to it, whatever. But I think what happened out of that was, in the end, you know how many times attorneys take a third of whatever you get? Well, he only took $3,000. I think he was afraid of Jane. And <laughs> but it showed me to not be afraid to speak what it is that's mine to speak in front of no matter who. Don't care. Don't, don't worry about it. And Jane continued to help me. It turned out I didn't get $600,000, but he had told me, our attorney told me, look, you could settle for what they're saying, or we could go to court. And when you go to court with this particular kind of life insurance, you'll either get everything Michael wanted you to get or nothing. Right. So I just took what I could get. I said, I don't care. Just give it to me. And I was blessed with living with Hope and Joe for nine months. And then I found a house that I bought with the money that Michael left me. And I was living on the first floor. Well, first I was living there for six months. And then the owner said he wanted to sell the house. So I said, all right, I'm not moving. I'm buying this house. He said, okay. So I, and it was right at the peak of the market, right? Literally a month later, the, after I signed the closing papers, the market tanked. But anyway, it's okay, right? It's all right. And I'm in this house, and it's a two-family. Two I always wanted to have rental property. And I was living on the first floor, and I couldn't rent out the second floor. I couldn't rent out the second floor. I couldn't rent. Now it's like February. I, I bought the house in September. It's now February. I haven't rented the second floor all these months. And... I'm in a restaurant at a bar having a glass of wine. It's Valentine's Day. And this woman sits next to me. And we start chatting. And she wants a massage. I'm like, great. And we made an appointment. She was going to come over and get a massage. So she comes over. And I have two cats. I have Jasmine and Gemini. She's like, oh, I'm really allergic to cats. I'm really allergic to cats. I'm like, OK, well, I have an empty apartment upstairs. Why don't we take the massage table upstairs, and I'll give you the massage up there. She says, OK. Put the massage table up, give her a massage. At the end of the massage, she's changing. I'm in the other room, and I come back in the room, and she's looking at the wall. I'm like, what are you looking at? Now, the wall's freshly painted. I had painted it. All over the wall, somebody took, you know those paints that you kind of squeeze a, a, a tube of paint, and you can write on either your clothing, or you can write on a wall? All over the wall, it says, I love you, Michael. I love you, Michael. I love you, Michael. And I'm just like, oh my God. But what I got from it was I needed to be in that room. I needed to move upstairs. So I moved upstairs and I rented the first floor in a minute. Right. In a minute. It was amazing. So again, another one of those living life fully and being aware of these little miracles that are coming. Then I meet this amazing man sitting here. That one? This one right here. <laughs> this amazing man. And I was done. I was so done with men. I was so done with relationship. I was so, so done. And I was, I had been in a lot of pain and I just didn't want to go down that road again. And um, I was ready to break up with him. It was we met on December 28th. And by Valentine's Day, I'm like, this is not the right guy for me. And so I'm, but I'm not gonna break up with him on Valentine's Day, right? That's like awful. I didn't, I didn't not like the guy, I just didn't think he was the right guy for me. But he shows up with this most amazing little jewelry box that's really unique and unusual. And it's all alabaster and rhinestones and, 
It says, my heart belongs to you, and it's beautiful. But what was really weird about it was I knew this jewelry box. I've seen this jewelry box before. I'm like, what is up with this? And I don't know, he went to the bathroom or something. I go running into my room. I have a little memorabilia box in the back of my closet. I open it up. It's the exact same jewelry box that Michael had bought me on our first Valentine's Day. So I say, okay, Michael, I don't know what you're trying to tell me, but I am not going anywhere. And I call up my friend Barbara Hope the next day, and she says, look it, we really like Gabe, and you're not perfect, so stop looking for somebody who's perfect. She said, you know, maybe this is Michael's sign of saying, this is the guy for you. Just do it. And I stopped looking for him to be perfect. And I started looking at the things that I really liked about him. And it just kept coming back like he was the guy for me. And it's been an amazing journey. So, again, to be open to us, the oneness of all of us, the oneness of those of us who are here and the oneness of the ones that have passed on, the oneness of the messages that are coming to us all the time. And then, finally to this place, to this place of being a licensed unity teacher as well as going on to be a minister. When I first came here, and I knew I had to be here because Sean was talking about the retreat that he was having, and I go to look at the retreat, and this other minister is Carlos Anderson, who I hadn't seen in years. So I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to this retreat. If you want to come, Gabe, you're welcome, but I'm going. And he's like, yeah, I'll go. So we started coming here, and I knew this was my spiritual home. And then I decided, he, Sean did a baptism here of a 10-year-old girl. And when I saw it, I said, I need to be baptized. So I got baptized. And then when I became platform, it was the most bizarre thing. Now, Sean isn't a regular kind of dresser. But every time <laughs> I was platform with Sean, we'd show up with the same colors on. Whether it was bright orange, bright green, blue, black, it didn't matter. We were dressed exactly the same. And then I started having these physical tremors that I didn't know what they were, so we went to doctors, didn't know, they said, you're fine, there's nothing wrong with you, and what came through when I journaled about it was, be the minister you came here to be, and I was like, I don't know what that means, I don't understand, so I started doing different things at my workplace, and then I, I got another one of these tremors, I'm like, I don't know, Sean, something's wrong with me, but the doctors are saying there's nothing wrong, and he's like, sit down. I'm like, wow, he never spoke to me in that tone before. What's up with that? And he said, I think you're supposed to be a minister. And I just started to cry. I was like, no, I can't be a minister. I'm over 50 years old. I can't start something now. Blah, 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 blah. He said, yeah, you can. I am. You can do it. And he said, how, what difference does it make how old you are? So as soon as I let it in, I knew that was the truth. I knew that's what I needed to do. So I went on this journey, and you guys all helped me. I did my GoFundMe, and we did the concert, and it was just one thing after another. That's how I know I'm on the right track when it starts getting easy again. Life gets easy again. So this past week, I went to Unity Village. We couldn't get a room in the hotel, so we had to rent out the Fillmore Manor, which was amazing. And it was really decorated beautifully, but most of the artwork in the place was just signs like that. There is always something to be thankful for, or blessings, or gather, or love, or you know, just wooden signs all over the place. There was one painting that was above the fireplace, and then there was a, 
a bunch of little photographs of the Fillmores. And it wasn't Myrtle and Charles's place, but it was their second son, Rickard Fillmore. It was his house with his wife. And actually, their daughter was born in that house. She was the only person ever born at, Village, at Unity Village. And we're all going through the rooms and everything. And we go into the bathroom. And there's this one painting of Silver Oaks Winery. Oh. <laughs> and I'm just like, I, I was just like, and so Audrey and um, Mariette are like, what's the matter? I'm like, I can't believe this painting. They said, it's just, again, the miracle of how I just am open to the symbols and the signs that we are all one and that I'm living life fully because I still see these things and I know that I'm watched over, whether it's Michael or Spirit or whoever it is, that I'm being guided. And that Jane was an amazing teacher for me to watch how she was guided. And when she was done with me, she went on to another project. And I watched her for a while with that and then, and we've kind of lost touch. And she always said to me, if you need me, I will be there. And I know that. She will just magically show up in my life because that's what she does. So. In the end, I read a quote this week, and I ended up buying a book, a poetry book, and there was a, an Einstein quote that says, there are two ways to lead your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle. And I choose to look at it like everything is a miracle. Thank you. Yeah.